Um, the first thing I should like to say straight away about the aim and the scope of the Bible is that the Bible was never designed to cover the whole range of human knowledge in detail. Nor was it designed to be a revelation of all that could be revealed. There are some people who have um, a, a, an idea of the Bible which, whilst it exalts it and in some ways gives it its proper authority and place, yet uh, is false and leads more thinking people into many snares and into many disappointments. The Bible was never, ever intended to cover the whole range of human knowledge. There is a sense in which the Bible, of course, does cover the whole range of human experience and knowledge, but it does not cover it in detail. It, it, it was never intended to do so. And certainly the Bible does not contain all that could be revealed by God. There is a vast, vast and endless universe that could be revealed, but which God in his wisdom and in his grace has chosen not to reveal. The Bible is a God-given revelation. And it has an aim and a scope. But it was never meant to be, uh, to cover the whole range of human wisdom. Let's put it another way. It is not an encyclopedia. It's not a divine encyclopedia where you can turn up the pages and find out everything about everything. It was never meant to be that. It's no, nor is it a detailed history of the races and the nations. Nor is it, in fact, a history book of a particular nation or particular nations. It's not a book on astronomy or uh, geology or botany or biology or zoology or any otherology. Uh, it, uh, again, that's not the scope of the Bible. Uh, it's not a handbook on science. Some people are disappointed with the Bible because um, they feel it should have much more that is scientific in it. It's not a handbook on science. It, it, its aim rules that out. And we must understand it clearly. Nor is the Bible a philosophical treatise or a textbook on theology. I'm a f I fear that some theologians have almost made the Bible into a kind of textbook for theology. But it was never intended as a theological textbook. Philosophy, of course, there is in the Bible, divine philosophy, but it is not a philosophical treatise. All this we must understand. It, if, in fact, it had been any of these, its whole aim would have been seriously obscured, if not wholly frustrated. And furthermore, the vast majority of mankind would have found the Bible 
wholly unintelligible. For instance, those who would like the Bible to be uh, couched in much more scientific language would have discovered that the vast majority of mankind all down through the ages would have found the Bible a closed book to them. They would not have been able to understand. And even today, when you take the whole population of the world, there is only a tiny portion that would be able to understand the Bible. Whereas, in fact, the Bible can speak to every man and woman of every generation that has ever lived. That again is something we've got to understand. I would like to say something else um, in this. What the Bible does touch on in any field, uh, it does so with absolute accuracy. And in the end, it has always been vindicated. Now, the Bible has been held up to ridicule, uh, not just in the last century or two, but down through the centuries of time. Again and again, different statements, different things that have been categorically stated in the Word of God have been held up to human ridicule. But in the end, the Bible has outlived the ridicule and indeed has turned the tables upon those who have ridiculed it and made them appear ridiculous. There have been some very foolish things said by sometimes learned men, uh, which in the end have proved to be absolutely unfounded. Now where the Bible touches anything in any field, it is absolutely accurate. Um, I think we ought to put, just give one word of warning uh, here. Um, one has got to distinguish between clear and dogmatic statement of fact and poetry. For instance, this evening, if I was to write a poem, and was in my poem, um, you won't find this in scripture, but if in my poem I was to say that this evening the stars hung like dews on threads of silver in the sky, no one surely here would say that I actually believe that the stars were drops of dew hanging on silver threads in space. You would understand straight away that I was being poetic. And that when you look at the stars on a somewhat cold and frosty night, they do look rather like uh, drops of dew on threads of silver. Or again, if I spoke of the, uh, the stars being like hoarfrost scattered through the heavens, again, it may be a description, but I'm not actually suggesting that the stars are hoarfrost scattered through the heavens, a kind of heavenly hoarfrost. Um, that's obvious that it's poetry. And there are parts of God's word in which there is true poetry. And uh, we've got to understand that and understand it in its, uh, in its right setting and its right context. But wherever the Bible makes a clear and definite statement, it is unfailingly and unerringly accurate. Even when at the time men do not understand it, and when it seems to run counter to the opinions then prevalent amongst men. Again, it is because the Bible 
has a definite aim that it uses popular language and modes of thought. Uh, yet, you see, it is a remarkable fact that such usage has proved timeless in its value. The Bible has always used popular language and it's always used the modes of, the co of thought common to the common man. And it has been because of that that it has a timelessness uh, in, its, uh, in its language. For instance, a child of God in David's day could read a verse of the book of Deuteronomy and a child of God in Paul's day could read the same verse, and a child of God in Luther's day could read the same verse, and a child of God in our day could read the same verse, and all four get a blessing out of the same verse. Because of the timelessness of the language used. Now that's a point to bear in mind. Again, look at it another way. Do you realize that a, a, a primitive savage just, just recently say, taught his language just recently reduced to script, who for the first time in a faltering, stumbling way is reading some verse in a psalm, can have the same overwhelming sense of meeting with God in that psalm as a highly educated man, a highly educated Westerner reading the psalm here. You see, somehow God's word has been couched in such a simplicity of language, in popular language, that God can speak to a savage who has come to Christ and a very highly educated and sophisticated man and can reach both at the same moment. Now there is no other book that can do it. And if in fact this Bible had been written in any other kind of language or other modes of thought had been used, it would never have reached the wide range of people, not only today, but in every, or all over time. Now, I think we ought to take note of that. And then again, I think we ought also to add that the Bible is not a book of sermon outlines. I fear sometimes that some ministers look upon the Bible as a, a divine a book of sermon outlines or sermon ideas, ideas for sermons or illustrations for sermons. You know, it's a book you sort of thumb through to find a really good illustration uh, to prop up some uh, thought you may have. Nor is it a mere divine promise box as some Christians, especially Christian ladies, tend to use the Bible. Uh, as if somehow or other, and of course it's absolutely true, all the promises in Christ are yea and amen. But the Bible is not merely a divinely inspired promise box uh, for the use of Christians, nor is it a kind of um, daily homily, you know, daily thoughts, uh, a book where you dig into uh, every morning before you go to work to get a little treasure. 
Uh, of course, mind you, it's, it's vital and necessary to get something out of God's Word every day. But that's not the whole aim of the Bible. Just to provide you with something each day, I'm quite sure that, that is part of God's intention. Because it is necessary for you and I to be fed uh, on the Word of God. But that is not the aim of the Bible. Nor is the Bible a collection of comforting scriptures. Uh, uh, a whole lot of passages brought together which we just find helpful in times of trouble. Now, it may contain all of these various things we have mentioned, but they do not constitute the aim of the Bible. The Bible has a very clear and definite aim. And everything revealed in it is related to that end. Its aim governs its scope. Could we turn to one verse in Deuteronomy? Deuteronomy 29 and verse 29. Deuteronomy 29, verse 29. The secret things belong unto the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong unto us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. Now we must not expect to find in the Bible what is not important for us to know. On the other hand, everything which is vitally important for us is revealed within its pages. Its aim governs its scope. You see, the Bible has a definite aim. Therefore, it doesn't become uh, a treatise on geology or botany or biology or zoology or any of the other ologies. It doesn't, uh, it touches science. Of course, it's got to because science is part of life itself. But uh, it's, uh, not, uh, uh, it's not a handbook on it. You see, its aim governs its scope. The Bible has a very definite aim. And therefore, everything which does not come into uh, a vital relationship to that aim is not somehow or other furthering that aim, helping us to understand that aim, that aim to be achieved in our lives or in our life together, is ruled out. Now you can see, I'm sure, quite obviously, that if God had wanted to, he could have not merely given us 66 books, but 366 books. Uh, he could have gone on and on and on and on and on. And the wealth of material we would have got would have completely overwhelmed us to such a degree that, uh, well, I think the real theme of the Bible would have been lost. We've had enough trouble, if I may say so reverently, with the 66 books that constitute this library. The volumes that have been written, the controversy that has raged, the conflicting ideas that have stemmed from different interpretations of parts of this book. And yet we believe that within these covers is the minimum that is absolutely necessary for us to understand. Everything here within these covers is vital 
to us. If the aim of this book is to be achieved in our lives and in our life together, and not only in your life personally, but in all the lives of God's children from the beginning until now, this book has had a job to do, both whilst it was in the making and since it has been completed, and on until the last day dawns. This book has a job to do. And in God's wisdom, he has revealed certain things, and those things belong to us. And the rest he has drawn a veil over, and some of them are fascinating and um, entrancing. We would love to know some of the things which God has decided to keep secret. But here in his word, <clears throat> he has revealed to us enough for us to understand what is his purpose and what he wants and how he's going to achieve it and how you and I may be brought into it. So I want to repeat again and again um, that the aim governs the scope. Now, the aim of the Bible is remarkably evidenced in its unity of theme, which, once seen, is apparent everywhere in the books of the Bible. The Bible is like an immense tree. Its one life is variously manifested in roots here and trunk there and branches there and leaves and, and blossom and fruit. It has only one life. And yet this immense tree that is the Bible is somehow or other, it contains all kinds of manifestations of that one life. I look upon the life in the tree as the theme. And you see it, as it were, under different guises everywhere. Now, all is livingly connected. Every part of it uh, is, is, in, is essential to the whole, just as blossom is essential to the whole tree, as, as the leaves are essential to the whole tree, as the branches are essential and the roots are essential. All have a part to play. They are manifestations of the life of the tree, different manifestations of one life. Now, the Bible is just like that. It is like a, a ministry in which there is one theme from beginning to end. And it is, it is variously manifested in different parts of God's Word. You know, so often when we are babes in Christ, we see the blossom, or we may see the leaves, or we may see the branches, but we fail to see the common source and the common life and the common power of the whole. Uh, when we're young in the Lord, when we come to the Bible, well, we're, we're, we're perhaps taken up with um, the second coming of the Lord. It thrills us. Matthew 24. Oh, it's wonderful. And then, of course, there's, there's chapters in, uh, uh, in Thessalonians about the coming of the Lord, and, and they fascinate us. How do they tie up? And then perhaps a little later, we are, we are absorbed with something else. Perhaps we're going through a troubled time in our lives, and somehow one of the Psalms lives to us. And 
how much it means to us at that time. Or perhaps we've started to read uh, the, the life of Abraham and, uh, and, and that's the thing that means everything to us. Or perhaps we've got some Bible studies on the, on the tabernacle and we marvel, we marvel at, at what God, how God designed the tabernacle and what each part symbolizes. But we fail to see the whole, uh, the, the theme uh, running throughout the whole book. We, we just, um, we, we see the various parts and we are thrilled and helped by the various parts, but we do not come to see the essential theme that runs throughout. Now, I think that in understanding the aim of the Bible, we have got to realize that um, the, it, it, it is contained throughout, and uh, as I've said, it is variously manifested. Now, I've put on the board um, this uh, chart, which some of you will be acquainted with from um, other years, <coughs> the relation of Genesis the first three chapters of Genesis, to the last three chapters of the book of Revelation. Now, it is remarkable that this book that we call the Bible has an introduction and a conclusion. And that introduction and conclusion completely concur. They correspond. It is the beginning of something and its conclusion, its finalization, its realization. And it is a, an even more remarkable fact that if you were to take the first two chapters of Genesis and the last two chapters of Revelation, then without sin, the only, the only reference to it would be no more pain, crying, mourning, or death, and the fact that nothing de that defiles or maketh an abomination can enter into the city, that would be the only inference that there had been something unclean or sinful. In fact, you would have the beginning of something and the end of something. In other words, you have, as it were, what God originally intended and the way God has got it. In the first three chapters, heaven and earth. In the last three chapters, a new heaven and a new earth. In the first three chapters, paradise lost. And in the last three chapters, paradise regained. In the first three chapters, Satan enters. And in the last three chapters, Satan is cast out forever and ever. In the first three chapters, earth is cursed. In the last three chapters, no more curse. In the first three chapters, Adam and Eve. Now note there is a progression here. Adam and Eve become in the last three chapters a redeemed people, which no man can number. And then in the first three chapters, it is a garden. Now note a progression. In the last three chapters, the garden has become a city. Yes, a garden city, but it's a city. The garden has become a city. And then in the first three chapters, you have the tree of life. In the last three chapters, you have the tree of life. In the first three chapters, you have the river of life. And in the last three chapters, you have the river of life. In the first three chapters, you have God walking in the midst at a certain time each day. He came into the garden to commune with man and woman. But in the last three chapters, you have God dwelling in the midst forever. He, it has become his home. He is not visiting it at a certain time. He is there forever. He will make his tabernacle or home with men 
it says in Revelation 21 and verse 3. In the first three chapters of Genesis, you have earthly marriage. Adam and Eve wed. In the last three chapters, you have heavenly marriage. The lamb and the wife of the lamb wed together. In the first three chapters, you have pain, sorrow, death. In the last three chapters, you have no more pain, crying, mourning, or death. In the first three chapters, you have time ushered in. And in the last three chapters, you have eternity ushered in. In the first three chapters, you have gold, precious stone. And then this, this that we've always had discussion about, what is it? Delio. Uh, it is uh, in chapter 2, verse 11 and 12. It is in connection with the river. If you follow the course of the river, you will find gold and precious stone, the onyx stone. If you read in Exodus, you will discover that the onyx stone, you remember the high priest had 12 precious stones on his breastplate. And then on each stone was engraved one of the tribes of the children of Israel. On his shoulders he had again two uh, blocks of precious stone, and they were onyx stones. And on each shoulder he had six names. In other words, the onyx stone symbolized all the precious stones on the breastplate of the high priest. And then again, this delium. Well, delium is a, an aromatic plant which, when you break the branch, a sort of white substance oozes out, which quickly hardens. The rabbis in Christ's day have always discussed as to what this meant in chapter 2. Uh, they were, many of them were of the uh, conviction that it was a pearl because of the river. You found it in the river, followed the course of the river. Whatever we may say, the point is whether it was an actual pearl or whether it is just something which when broken comes down, becomes hard and looks like a pearl, because in Hebrew the two things are of course are almost the same. Uh, the, the, um, uh, the plant is called the pearl plant. Uh, when you come over to the last three chapters of the of the book of Revelation, you discover that the city has been produced out of only three materials, gold, precious stone, and pearl. The interesting thing is that in the first three chapters, the gold, the precious stone, and the pearl are all hidden. You've got to, got to follow the course of the river to find the precious materials. But when you come to the last three chapters, these materials have not only been discovered, but they have been worked upon and refined and polished, and they have become a city. There are only three materials out of which the whole city is produced. Of course, it's only symbolic, we know that. But the city is produced out of only three materials, gold, precious stone, and pearl. And then the last thing in the first three chapters, we have the Spirit of God brooding. You know, in uh, Genesis chapter 1 and verse 2, you have this word, um, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters, or in the margin of the revised version, was brooding upon the face of the waters. And uh, the word used, the Hebrew word used, is the word that came from the eagle, or vulture, when it, when it was just simply hovered, waiting. And the idea was the Holy Spirit was, as it were, hovering, looking around, taking in everything, and, as it were, seeking to find either a place to land 
or seeking to see what it was going to do next. And uh, this is the picture we have of the Spirit of God in the first verses of the Bible. He is brooding upon the face of the waters. Later on, of course, we discover that out of all the chaos and the void, he produces something. But the first picture we ever get, if I may use it almost irreverently, is of the anxiety and agitation of the Holy Spirit of God. The last three chapters of the Bible, almost the last verses, there is a different picture altogether. And we have a rather remarkable phrase when you think about it. You would have thought it would, you would have thought it would have said, the Lord Jesus and the bride say, come. But instead we have the Spirit and the bride say, come. It is as if over the whole of world history, from eternity to eternity, what the Holy Spirit was brooding over, what he was moving upon, has now finally, after much conflict and battle, has finally been produced. And now the, the Holy Spirit has the bride at his side. And so it is as if he is saying to the whole of mankind, now we've got the, object, the objective of God, Israel, has come. The, the, the door is open now to a new era. All that God originally intended has been achieved. And then, of course, we don't know what eternity to come holds. All we know is that the bride, uh, the spirit and the bride say, come. It is a very wonderful picture that in the first three chapters of the Bible, you have the Spirit of God, as it were, brooding, hovering upon the face of the waters. But in the last three chapters, you have the Spirit taking John, not an angel, but the Spirit, taking John into a high place and showing him the holy city, the wife of the Lamb, coming down out of heaven. And then the last recorded utterance, the Spirit and the Bride say, now, it is, I am quite sure, in an understanding of the relationship between the first three chapters of the Bible and the last three chapters of the Bible that we come to an understanding of the aim of the Bible. <clears throat> I don't know uh, whether you do sometimes what some of us do, and that is to discover what a, bo a book is about. We read the first few uh, pages, and we often read the last few pages. Uh, just to get an idea of what exactly um, the book is about, what character of the book is, what, what its purpose is. And it is, I'm quite sure, it, between these first three chapters and the last three chapters, uh, and, and a reflection upon them, and studying them, that you and I will come to an understanding of what is the aim of the Bible. And then again, I, Louise has very kindly lent, lent me her blackboard, as I ran out of blackboards um, uh, this evening. I believe she's very pleased about it. Um, and I have drawn this little uh, design here, which is very simple, but it puts the whole Bible in a nutshell. Um, origins, Genesis. Issues, Revelation. Processes, Exodus to Jude. It's so simple. Of course, I know when you really look into it, it's not quite as simple as that. But nevertheless, 
um, uh, just as a, as a sort of bird's eye view of the whole Bible, uh, there it is. Genesis is a book of origins. There's nothing in the whole Bible that doesn't find its origin in the book of Genesis. And the book of Revelation is a book of issues. It's not just uh, like the other books. It is a book of the, of the conclusions of things. Everything has come to its final consummation. For instance, you've got man, fallen man, at the zenith of his power. You've got Babylon, that great city which is the symbol of man in all his, his creative genius, in all his fallen energy and power. And on the other side, you've got the city of God coming to its fulfillment. You have the, the harlot on one side, you have the bride on the other side. You've got this amazing picture of the issues of everything. You have God uh, working out his purpose and coming to the climax of it, and you have Satan working out his design and purpose and coming to the climax of it. Two sides. God as it were, bringing everything to its climax in the appearing of Jesus Christ for the second time. And the devil bringing everything to its climax in the appearance of the Antichrist, the man of sin, the beast and the false beast. The kingdom of God ripening to its, its, uh, its appearing upon the stage of time and eternity. And on the other side, you've got this ripening of a world system which goes right back into the, into the mists of antiquity, also coming to its fulfillment. Well, now then, um, I'd like you to mark some other things about the Bible. I have said that the aim of the Bible is evidenced in its unity. Now, this unity is seen in many, many ways. Um, it is rather interesting, I'm not going to put a lot on this, but it is rather interesting that the Bible begins with God in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God. And it is rather beautiful that the Bible ends with the saints. Uh, the very last word, except for Amen, uh, in the whole Bible is that the grace of the Lord Jesus be with the saints. And it is also interesting that the very central verses of the Bible, Psalm 118, verse 7 and 9, we find God and man reconciled. The Lord is on my side among them that help me. Therefore shall I see my desire upon them that hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to put confidence in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to put confidence in princes. It is rather remarkable that the Bible begins with God, ends with man, and its central verses are God and man reconciled. One. It is also rather interesting, again, I'm not going to put a lot on it, it's only interesting, but it is rather interesting, that the first question ever asked in the Old Testament is a question that God asked of man, where art thou? And the first question in the New Testament is asked by men of God, where is he? 
Um, then again, I think we should be greatly helped if we understand um, the basic uh, themes, themes, for there are many themes in Scripture, which all flow into the one great theme. Now we'll look at them first and then finally we'll sum it up and see if we can come to the major theme of the Bible. Like many little tributaries running into a great river. The first that we see is this matter um, of atonement through blood. And we see it from Genesis to Revelation. It is one of the most remarkable strands running right through the Bible. Now it begins in Genesis 3 and verse 21. Right in the very watershed, as it were, of the Bible. Genesis 3 verse 21. The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife coats of skins and clothed them. That was the first time that blood was ever shed in human history. Man and woman had fallen and they tried to cover their nakedness with leaves which they themselves stitched. But God showed them that the only way their sin could be atoned for was by the terrible way of death, the shedding of blood. In other words, there had to be a death for sin in order that there might be an atoning for sin, an atonement made. Now we get that immediately in chapter 4, as if to enforce the lesson, the story of Abel and Cain. And Cain tried to bring again the fruits of the ground, which in the Bible are always a symbol of man's natural works. He tries to bring this to God as an offering to God, as something, as it were, to cover himself before God. Abel brings a lamb. And Abel's offering is accepted, and Cain's is rejected. And then follows the story that because of Cain's hatred of Abel, because he was accepted with God, he slew him. Now here you've got again this whole matter of atonement through blood. God rejected Cain because he did not bring a lamb. He brought the works of his hands. And then if you go on right the way through Scripture, well, you find it all. Skip over a lot of the Scripture and come to the book of Exodus in chapter 12 and 13 and 14. You've got the Exodus, the, the, the Passover. And here you've got one of the great themes of Scripture. It has begun as a little trickle. In Genesis chapter 3, it's begun to broaden out in Genesis chapter 4. And as you trace it all the way through Genesis, it becomes a real rivulet. But when it comes to Exodus chapter 12 and 13 and 14, it's become a river. Now, for the first time, the thing is becoming clear. There can be no passing over of sin unless there is the shedding of the blood of a lamb. And that lamb's blood has got to be put on the lintels of the door. The marks have got to be there on the outside. And the lamb itself has got to be consumed. It's got to be eaten by those who are within the house. Go on from there and you come to all the sacrifices of the book of Leviticus. A whole number of sacrifices. Trespass offering, sin offering, whole burnt offering, peace offering, meal offering. But all these offerings speak again 
of the of atonement through blood, of the only way to come into the presence of God, is by the shedding of blood for the atonement of our sin. You come on, come to the question of prophecy, and of course you've got Isaiah 53. Now, what might seem to be crude, and what might seem to be almost repulsive to our natural mind, suddenly takes on a new light. In Isaiah 53 we're told, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. But the Lord, and uh, all we like sheep have gone astray, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He has laid as a sheep to the shearer. And so it goes on, and it goes on, and it goes on. And for the first time, we had a full-orbed view, hundreds and hundreds of years before Christ's coming and work, we have a full-orbed view of the fact that all this shedding of blood is only a foreshadowing of him who is to be the Lamb of God, who by the shedding of his own blood was to bear away the sin of the whole world. Well, all right, it's not only there. I mean, you take Psalm 22, and if you come to Psalm 22, you've got to the heart of the matter. Again, here's another psalm that speaks of the shedding of blood, but it is the shedding of Christ's blood. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And so on. When you read through this um, psalm, you understand the purpose of God, that it is centred in the work of Christ on the cross. All right, turn over and you come to Zechariah chapter 13. And there we, we read of these mysterious words about the, um, about the uh, uh, marks, the wounds in the midst of thy hands. What is this? Again, it is the speaking of the sacrifice of Christ. For our sins. Here again is this atonement theme in the Bible. Hundreds of years before Christ comes. We have this amazing picture. Um, we're told about the sword awaking against the man who is my fellow, saith the Lord. Uh, a, a quotation that cannot refer to anyone else but Christ. For none of us are the fellows or the equals of God. So here you've got this amazing theme. But come, of course, to, to the New Testament and immediately you, you've come, come to the heart of the matter. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, says Paul. The Father sent the Son to be the Saviour of the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, and so on. You've got to the heart of the matter in the teaching of Christ and the teaching of the Apostles. Calvary is a theme from beginning to end of the Bible. Come to the epistles, and everywhere you turn in the letters of Paul, or Peter, or James, or the writer of the Hebrews, and you're up against the cross. Everywhere it is the cross. And then you come to the book of Revelation, and you think perhaps you're finished with Calvary, and there at the heart of, of eternity to come, you see a lamb as it had been slain. So you see, this... 
a theme, this atonement theme, the theme of the slain lamb, begins in Genesis and runs right the way through to the book of Revelation. Or again, take another theme in God's word. Take God's dwelling place, for want of a better word. Well, let's put it this way. Let's call it God's home. Now, here's another theme in Scripture, the home of God. It begins in Genesis and it ends in the book of Revelation. Well, it doesn't really end in the book of Revelation, but you know what I mean. That's where we lose sight of it. As far as we're concerned, it conclude, It is concluded there. Right? Come right back to Genesis. Chapter 2, and what do we find? We, we see Adam, um, and we see him being put to sleep. And we see out of his side some flesh and bone being taken. And we see woman being formed out of Adam, and being brought to Adam. And Adam says, this is now flesh of my flesh and bone of my bone. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And then he goes on to say, these two shall become one flesh. Now, this is the beginning of what we call marriage. But marriage in itself, as the marriage service so beautifully states it, although I'm not sure, certainly some who don't like it, particularly the Mormons, um, it says, until death do us part. It is a temporary thing. It ends with death. When we pass into another life, another, another way altogether, it is something temporary and for this life. But marriage was instituted as the old state church service puts it, to signify the mystery of the union betwixt Christ and his church. And it was instituted in Genesis chapter 2. And there you have the norm of this whole matter of the home of God. A man and a woman becoming one. A man and a woman finding their home one in the other. A man and a woman becoming two parts of one whole. Now God says, this is what I want. Here begins a story. And as you begin to go through the whole of the Bible, you trace it right through, you come to the book of Exodus, and there you've got a nation. Adam and Eve have become a people. And uh, here you've got a huge multitude. And God is making a covenant with them, and he seals the covenant with blood. And we are told that this covenant relationship is marriage. God says to the, the children of Israel, I this day have married. And from that point on, in the Bible, God's children are looked upon as the wife of the Lord, <coughs> as the bride of God. And so as you go on right the way through, this is the great cry of the prophets. When they find that God's people uh, are sinning and compromising, they don't call it compromise. Do you know what they call it? Adultery. That's the word they use, adultery, because God's people have left their own husband and are, and are uh, sort of having love affairs with others. So the prophets call it, they call compromise, worldliness, mixture, they call adultery. Now when you come to the summing up of this thing, you find it in, in the prophet Hosea. And here in this wonderful book of Hosea, you have the most wonderful cry from the heart of God about this faithless bride of his. Uh, Hosea had, the, had his, the experience himself. 
he had a wife that he bought in a slave market, redeemed her, and she proved to be faithless, and it broke his heart until he went and, um, and found her uh, again. Now, uh, the, the, the point that we are making is, do you see, that here in God's Word, we have this theme running right the way through. When you come to Ephesians chapter 5, Paul has got quite a lot to say to husbands and wives. But he doesn't just say it to husbands and wives. He says it to them because they are a picture of Christ and the church. His whole attitude is that there's an awful lot here to be said just because this matter is, has been lifted onto an altogether new level. And if you go on, of course, on to Revelation chapter 20 and 21, where there you've got the last concluding words about this matter, when you see the wife of the Lamb, the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven. There's a marriage supper, marriage feast. That's the end. She's, she's entering now upon her married life with the Lamb. But you see, this question of the home of God is not only, you, is not only spoken of under the, under the symbol of a bride or a wife. You go right the way back and you'll find it, of course, in this whole matter of the tabernacle, which occupies such a large place in the early part of the Old Testament. Or, again, under the symbol of the temple, which occupies, again, such a large place in the latter part of the um, Old Testament. These two terms, tabernacle and temple, constitute a whole part, a whole area of the Old Testament. And so you see this theme, the bride, the tabernacle, the temple, it's all the same thing, running right through Scripture. And when you come to the New Testament, well, we find it's all transferred to what the Lord Jesus said uh, what the Lord Jesus called my church. Upon this rock I will build my church. So you've got this whole thing throughout scripture, whether it's used under the symbol of bride, tabernacle, temple, the body of Christ, um, and so on, or the city of God. You've got it throughout scripture. The home of God. It's another theme in God's word. Or again, you'll find another theme from beginning to end if you follow the history of God's children. I've tried to trace a little bit of it on the board, very simply. I'll say a little more about that in one moment. You see, you've got a history in God's word right the way through the Old Testament and right the way through the New Testament. It begins in Eden. And it begins with an original intention of God in the creation of man. And it goes on after his, his great offer, this, the probation that man was put on. He could either have the tree of life or he could have the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And you know we can't stay with it. Man chose the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what we call the fall took place. Something came into man's very being, alien to God. Man became another creature to that which God intended. His very constitution was altered. The very image of God was defaced. And somehow or other, a satanic element 
became wedded to man. Satan became, Satan fathered the human race. And from that point on you have two things. You have what the Quakers called the good seed and the bad seed. And right the way through the Bible you begin to trace this, these two streams. One, both beginning in the first chapters of Genesis, one, the course of evil, fallen man, and the other, the course of a new man, redeemed man. And all the way through Scripture, you follow the course. Well, now, we're not going to follow the course of fallen man, but very swiftly, you can follow the course of redeemed man. On out of the Garden of Eden, you see them, you follow them through Enoch, who was translated, you follow them through Noah and the building of the ark, the flood that destroyed the whole world, and then on, out, eight, being saved through that. And then on to Abraham, where you come to a new phase in God's um, uh, purpose. When now he's, he's dealing just simply with uh, the human, uh, mankind as races, uh, as just nations, he now calls out one man, Abraham. And he tells Abraham that he is going to become the father of all them that believe. And so we have Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And uh, Jacob has 12 sons. And, uh, and those 12 sons become the fathers of the children of God, the children of Israel. And then we see Joseph going down into Egypt. And then we see him being raised up in the most remarkable way to provide for all the others. And they all go down into Egypt. And they are in Egypt for many centuries until they become a strong nation. And then we have the era of Moses. And we discover the man that God has equipped to lead out a nation. And we see God's people cared for. And the, the birth of a nation in the Passover and the Exodus, the people of God under the old covenant were born by blood and by water. They were born by the blood of the Passover lamb and by the water of the Red Sea. And then we've traced their course right the way through the wilderness and we see in the wilderness the law is given to them. God reveals himself to them. We see the tabernacle is given to them. They have a picture of the, of the house of God given. And so we can go on and we can go on and we can go on right the way through till we come into the promised land and we watch Joshua lead the people over into the possession of the promised land. And we see them settling in the promised land. Then over to the time of Samuel. And now there's a new phase in the history of God's children. And here you begin to see the first, the, the introduction of the throne. And God's people choose a king, a false king. And then they are led to the right king, David. And then we come to the temple. And then we come to the zenith of the history of God's people in the Old Testament, the reign of Solomon. After that, we had the exile and the restoration, and it's the time of the prophets. But you see, the whole is one unfolding history of God's dealings with a community. A community of redeemed people. Redeemed by blood. And when you come to the Lord Jesus Christ, 
in the first chapters of Matthew, you discover that here is one who is himself the fulfillment of the whole of the Old Testament. And from then on you begin to follow another course. You watch him in his great life, his ministry, and you begin to see how all the scriptures of the Old Testament, both in word and in type, have been fulfilled in him. And then we come to the cross. And we see him offer himself up on the cross. And we see that on the third day, the resurrection. And then we see the day of Pentecost. And it is the birth of the church. And on the day of Pentecost, the story, uh, the substance, we've had the shadow up till then. Now the substantial has come. The shadow has given way to the real thing. And you know, the book of Acts is, is not finished. It is an unfinished record. Because as Dr. Campbell Morgan has pointed out, the story has not finished yet. We are still in the story of the history of God's dealings with this community of redeemed people. Going right back to Abel going right on to the last one who will ever be redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. We're all in this wonderful community of the redeemed. Now, this whole idea is obscured in our English translation because in the Old Testament we have the word congregation used and in the New Testament we have the word church used. But to the, to the New Testament saints, reading their Septuagint version of the Old Testament, they had the same word ecclesia in both. And they could see straight away that there was an ecclesia in the Old Testament and now there was an ecclesia in the New. See, the two were one. Here was a theme running through Scripture. And uh, the wonder of it all is it's not finished. You and I are part of this. So we trace our origins right back Right back where? to when? Not to the day of Pentecost. We go beyond the day of Pentecost. We go back to Solomon, to David, on back to Samuel, back to Moses, on through Joseph and Jacob, back to Abraham, beyond Abraham, to Noah and Enoch, and back to Abel. We are in a community of redeemed ones. <coughs> well, now again... I think we ought to also recognise that there is yet another theme, all these tributaries that flow into the um, one great river, and I think it leads us to a really um, what is the major theme of Scripture. It is the great battle over the purpose of God. We read Psalm 2 because it is the most eloquent uh, uh, interpretation of this battle that has raged from eternity on to eternity to come. It is this battle over the purpose of God. Is God going to have his way or is he not? Now in this book it is revealed to us that there was one who said, I will be like the Most High. I will exalt my throne above the throne of God. Here, then, is the key to the conflict. There is a great adversary of God who has lifted up his hand against the Lord. And we have 
through time just the manifestation of a heavenly battle. And this battle is simply as to whether God is going to reign. Well, put it another way, this word kingdom of God is just what we're talking about. The kingdom of God, we get a, a slightly forced idea with the word kingdom because it's a rather comprehensive word. We could say the rule of God, the reign of God. You see, it's a question of whether God's reign is going to be established or not. Now, when you read Jeremiah 17 and verse 12, you read this, this in many ways, is a key to the whole Bible. <coughs> a glorious throne set on high from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. You've got the whole thing there. A glorious throne set on high is the place of our sanctuary. In other words, right from the beginning on to the end, the throne of God's glory is the place on high that is, our sanctuary, is the sanctuary of the redeemed. Now it is this which the enemy, the evil one, is out to frustrate and counter. And in Psalm 2, you've got this tremendous atmosphere of conflict. You've got the nations raging, kings meditating futile things. They're saying that it's all against the Lord and against his anointed. And it's rebellion. Let us cast his bands asunder, they say. And so on. But the Lord's word is this. Yet I have set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. Now that's the key to the Bible. God is on the throne. And the Bible is a record of great systems that have risen up which are only the earthly, physical manifestation of something essentially spiritual, which is satanic, and which has as its objective the dethronement of God and the enthronement of man. That's all. And so you have this great battle between God and Satan, which fills the stage the biblical stage. And the, and the point is this. God has said in the midst of the battle, while the kings meditate futile, vain things, and while the nations rage, and whilst the rebellion is at its height, he that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh, it says. He has said, yet I have set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. So God uses every single device of the enemy to work out in the end his own purpose. And so when you read on, it, it, we read this, Ask of me and I will give thee the nations for thine inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy procession. Here is the key to the battle. When Jesus met the devil in the wilderness, the devil said to him, Bow to me, worship me, and I will give thee the kingdoms of the world. Jesus never contradicted him. Satan is the prince of this world. And the kingdoms of this world belong to him. Paul speaks of it like this, World rulers of darkness. Who are they? Physical beings? No. He speaks of, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principles, against powers, against world rulers of darkness, against hosts of wicked spirits in the heavenlies. 
It's a strange array, an invisible array behind what is physical and earthly. And this is the battle. And if you look at it in this book we call the Bible, it's everywhere you go to one and two Chronicles and Ezra and Nehemiah. And there, after having told us the whole story and having a history already from the beginning to there, we're taken right back to Adam and right on to the end of the Old Testament. Why? Why, doesn't, why can't the two, the two books of Samuel or the two books of Kings do it for us? Because God wants to emphasize what the heart <coughs> of this battle is. And we see in those books, it's the temple. <coughs> that's the thing that the battle's raging over. All right, then come over, leave that. Let's come over to uh, the other books. Come over to the Song of Solomon. And when you are, come into the Song of Solomon, you've got an allegory. And this allegory is of, it's a picture of God and his church. And what do we find? We find another kind of battle. She keeps on getting so self-satisfied that her love for her Lord just vanishes. And uh, you've, got a, you've got a story of love, a love story. But it's a battle all the same. To wean her away from all that makes her self-sufficient and independent. And the last story in that Song of Solomon is when uh, the cry goes up, Who is this coming up out of the wilderness, leaning on her beloved? She's learned a lesson. And in the last chapters of the Song of Songs, what does she say? It's no lo longer, um, my beloved is mine, and I am his. A little later on it is, um, I am my beloved's, and he is mine. A little later on, it is, I am my beloved's. The rest's gone. You see, something's happened. And we find that instead of it being his and hers, in the last chapter of Song of Solomon, it is ours. Something has happened. Now you get this in all the different parts of the Bible which speak, essentially, of God's purpose. You've got it again in Revelation, in this great battle that rages over the purpose of God. It begins with the churches. We see their great, all their difficulty. We see all the collapse amongst the churches. Then after that, a little later on, when you've moved on from the churches, you've, you see it in uh, the great battle between these two things, Babylon and Jerusalem. And finally, you see this, the great, you hear the great cry that goes up. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom of God and of his Christ. And then that other great cry, the marriage su supper of the Lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. Now, you see, all this comes together to what is the major theme of the Bible. And it is simply that we have three, a threefold theme in the scriptures. We have the, the Savior, we have the method or the salvation, and we have the saved one. You can put it in different ways if you wish. You can put it like this. The Redeemer, the Redemption, and the Redeemed. 
Or you can put it like this. The mediator of the covenant, the blood of his covenant, and the people of the covenant. But you've got this threefold theme all the way through. And this is the explanation of Scripture from beginning to end. It doesn't matter how we put it, it's all, we'll find it everywhere in the Word, this threefold thing. Christ, the cross, his people. Christ is the one who is the centre of all, the heart of all. The cross is the means by which he does everything. And we, the his people, are those who are saved by him through his cross. It's as simple as that. So I think um, we can end there. I will... You see this um, uh, chart here on the board. Um, I've drawn it out especially um, for next week. But I put it up here because I wanted you to just see very simply um, the whole scope of the Bible. The scope is this green line. For before times eternal, onto the ages to come, or the ages of the ages. And this red line is time, beginning here at creation and ending at the uh, coming of the city, the end of the millennium. I've divided it up, although there is a little bit of controversy over this, into the major seven days, the week of time, which is generally understood. There are others who have other ideas, but generally these seven periods, or ages as we call them in Scripture, are more or less clearly defined. Some have more ages. Um, there are a few who have less than the seven. They have six. Some have six, they cut out the millennium. But otherwise, you have these, others are agreed by all. Um, beginning with the creation, the period or age of probation, ending with the fall, period or age of, the con of conscience, which ended with the flood, the beginning of the, uh, and end of the age of, of the races, ending with Abraham, the patriarchal age, from Abraham to Moses, and then, of course, the age of law, from Moses to Christ, and the age of grace, in which we are now in together, and lastly, this seventh, called the rest of God normally, uh, the seventh day of time. Now you can see, if you look at that, whatever you may feel about uh, the ages, you can see that the Bible, the scope of the Bible, generally, is from the beginning of time to the end of time. And it only gives us a glimpse of before times eternal, a real glimpse, but nevertheless only a glimpse. And it gives us only a glimpse of the ages to come. A glimpse, a real glimpse, but nevertheless only a glimpse. And it is in an understanding um, of this that Christ is the key to it all the centre and the heart and the fulfilment of it all, that we shall come to an understanding of the aim and the scope of the Bible. The Bible is a revelation of God's 
eternal purpose with the supreme aim that we might be saved into it. Now, will you keep that in mind? We've gone through an awful lot of material this evening. Keep it in mind, will you, for next week. The Bible is a revelation of God's eternal purpose with the supreme aim that we might be saved into it. A threefold theme. The Redeemer, the Redemption, the Redeemed. May the Lord help us.